You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. A conversation as part of the first ever Trinity Arts and Humanities uh, Festival. So first of all, before we go any further into what the history of the future is, just to say thank you to, see if I can do it all, Eve, Katrina, Eva, Christina, Eva and Emily and everyone in the Trinity Longroom Hub for putting together such an incredible programme of events. So, introduce you to myself. My name is Ellie Payne. Um, I am the coordinator of the Democracy Forum here in the Trinity Norman Hub and the co creator and co host of the History of the Future podcast. Now, just, I never want to miss an opportunity to plug a podcast. Uh, so, if you haven't listened already, all of Series One is already available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the series takes the idea of future shock and looking at this idea of how do we live in a world where the only certainty is uncertainty. How do we navigate this profound change that's coming at us at an unimaginable speed? And we talk to arts and humanities researchers, some familiar voices from Trinity, as well as practitioners working on the front line about some of these critical conversations for navigating tomorrow, from truth to identity to freedom, all the way through to agency. So if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, do. Uh, And just to say, we started that out all before ChatGPT. Yeah, I'm Mark Little and I spent 30 years um, as a journalist, as a startup person and now I work for Spotify, not necessarily in the music side of it, but uh, in all of my time what I've realised over the years is that we listen to economists and politicians to tell us what's going to happen in the future. We listen to people making predictions. They're really the only people who ever get it right are the people who are creators, creative people. Like I was inspired to join the project because of David Bowie. David Bowie back in 1991, I think, with Jeremy Paxman, was asked to predict the future of the internet. If you haven't seen that clip, it is perhaps the best future prediction ever of the future of not just the internet, but I think also artificial intelligence. He talks about how ridiculous the future is. And if you think the last 10 years of all the things that have happened to us in global politics, local politics, and the way our culture's been formed, it is ridiculous. So therefore, what we lean into in the second series is we're talking to people who are creating, who have imaginations that are not you know, constrained by the current prediction they need to make, the political system, but are freed by the idea of imagining the future as much as predicting it. So that's why we are so interested in music particularly, the creative arts, and why it is such a pleasure to have this conversation with Martin. I'll let you, mm-hmm. first of all, Ellie, introduce Martin's background, because I have some experiences I'd like to share with Martin of his early career. Yeah, so we're delighted to have Martin here with us on, I think, the first step in our journey to Series 2. So this is, you know, bear with us, it's, it's the start, not the end of a project right now. Um, but I was lucky enough to meet Martin during his PhD here in Trinity in uh, Music and AI, uh, way again before ChatGBT, you were ahead of that curve. He's currently an ILC postdoc here in the Centre for Digital Humanities. He's the editor of an incredible book based, I think, out of your PhD uh, on artificial intelligence and the music ecosystem, which I've spent the last week reading and I fully recommend it to everyone. It was incredible. He's also the founding chair of the IEEE Global AI Ethics Committee. So I think we are in very safe hands here in terms of expertise. Um, And you'll find him in so many different outlets right now commenting on what is happening, the current, the now and the future. I first met Martin, he won't remember this, I was standing in the crowd at the Lark of the Park in St. Anne's Park in Rohini, 86, while you were there, the founding member of Intuanua, which really defined like the Irish music scene along with some other great bands like, well obviously we know some of them with Auto de Fe and Radiators in Space, and so I remember those times, and, and when I look at your background since then, not only founding that musical group, but also being a solo songwriter, a promoter, you're a manager for Jack L, I know, 
and also you are now involved in helping people create music using technology. So this career, if I can just take you back to the 80s, um, I mean, this is not actually what you were, you were planning to do when you set out when you're playing keyboards in Intuanua, right? No, therapy is usually, uh, usually not group therapy. Uh, yeah, um, yeah I, I don't think too much about the past. Um, I've always been curious about the future. Um, but I, I, there are a lot of connections. I do know that a lot of the things that I was originally interested in uh, still are, are pretty much the same as they are now. They set the same kind of arc about how, well, how does that work, why is this, what might that do, um, and yeah, curiosity would be, the, would be the link, especially back then, because that was coming out of what, what was known as post-punk, which was like a very much a DIY, make it up, make your own clothes, make up your own futures, because at the time there was no work or no, any jobs or anything in Ireland, so uh, you, that, the idea really was to just kind of invent yourself. But also, it wasn't just disposable of the time, but it was also yeah. permanence in the lasting impression of your work. For example, you wrote the first song performed by the late, great Sinead O'Connor. Well, yeah, yeah, accidentally. I mean, I, I was, uh, I think I saw Paul walking in here. So uh, I was in school, and uh, like everybody, you to play a bit of music in school, and uh, I. Uh, just as an experimental band, we used to do a lot of things that would, would now be more similar to the kind of a noise experiments like John Cage type things that we wouldn't have known who he was at the time. Um, and then we just decided to um, uh, to do a demo, which kids do. But what was it? What's interesting? I just think about that story is that um, I just thought about how many the talented people that were there. Like for instance, at the time we did a session. Uh, so Paul, who was here, introduced me to a singer who he knew locally. There you are. I'm not wearing my glasses, but yeah, okay. Um, and so Sinead wrote, wrote the lyrics, um, but also the tape-up, because that day was those days there was tape-ups, and it was a guy called Jerry Leonard, and he went on to become David Bowie's um, music director. Um, there was like, I mean, of the, of the ten musicians that were involved, there's just so much talent around. Um, and I think that's still the same now. It's, 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 whatever, whatever's in the water here is fantastic, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, so uh, the, what's interesting about that from a, a practical point in terms of copyright, which we will be speaking a bit about today, is that um, some 40 years after that song was done, it featured in um, a, a documentary. And uh, Paul was very kind to say, I think Martin's owed that check because he... Uh, paid for the, the demo when we were teenagers. So that, that's the proof of copyright for me. Um, and as you'll see when we're talking about AI, at the, heart of at the heart of the conversation about AI is the role of intellectual property. And we'll try and demystify some of that as we go through. But before we get to that, that future piece and, and that AI piece, let's go back a second. Let's stick with the history of the history of the future piece that we like to talk about. And one of the things you've spoken about, Martin, before is this idea of music as a proto-language, something that goes right back, that this isn't a, a new conversation we're having, that kind of beginning of time in, in humans' relationship with music. Yeah, uh, it's a kind of handy thing when you're doing research, like a lot of it, you know, obviously you need to have your references and things like that. But when you're looking at the oral traditions, a lot of it is hearsay and what you think. Uh, and so there's a kind of a mythical past. Um, but there is a strong argument that before we had language, what we had was music, uh, and there are parts of 
uh, neuroscience, the kind of and the development of the human body that suggested that was possibly true. And certainly for the point of view of mythology, I like the idea that, that there was music before we could speak, and this idea of there was a Tower of Babel, it was a Tower of Song. So what does that got to do with anything? It kind of means that when we speak about music as an example of the creative arts, when we consider artificial intelligence and the issues that are involved, we can see that the idea of music is something that we can explore much more serious things, um, serious things like being, for instance, like the ideas of like, you know, uh, an autonomous weaponry and what are we going to do about political rigging and the future of democracy, which you guys are working, doing and stuff like that. So we talk about music and we're kind of going, well, you know, singing robots, how, how dangerous is that? Um, so it's a good place for us to explore in a playful way. Um, and I think further to your point, what you were, talk, we were chatting about a little bit earlier, is, is that there's this historical weird connection um, that I furthest back I could go to was um, Aristotle, who wrote about the idea of can you imagine what it would be like if a harp could uh, strum itself? And then you can kind of trace a history all the way up to Ada Lovelace. For instance, in the uh, 12th century, there's a Persian robot band that had two drummers. But all clearly a really bad idea to have two drummers at any point. Um, but but that, this was a robot band in the 12th century. Um, and Ada Lovelace, uh, who was the first computer programmer, I'm sure you're familiar with who she was, um, but when she looked at Charles Babbage's analytical engine, she was going, I wonder if this could make music, and if it did, what would that be like? So from the, all the way through of our development of music, there's this kind of weird connection to be, what would it be like if machines could make music like humans do? But I think it's important to, moving forward, to talk about the practical implications of technology here, to use a paradigm you, may, you use, which I think is really important, between the music ecosystem, which in many ways predates other creative artistic forms, particularly theatre and yeah. cinema, and the music industry, which is much more of a modern phenomena based in law. T talk about that a little, because I found that very useful in helping me understand where we go next. Yeah, well, music e ecosystem is, uh, if anybody was around in the 80s or ever read about the 80s, is easy to understand. It's about making music without getting paid. Um, <laughs> and historically, a lot of our, parti our participation in music is because we love it, or it's something that we do. It, it was never really seen as being a good career move, I don't think, at any stage. Um, so the, I, I like the term music ecosystem because when I analyze the, the, one, the history of music, uh, you can look at it as the idea that there's a certain form of practice that it has been going on uh, since, well, as we've mentioned, since probably uh, before we had language. And then there's this little blip in time, and this little blip in time is the 20th century or the late 19th century, late 1900s when we had the uh, 1800s when we had the invention of recorded music. And so the music industry that we know today and that we fret about, that everybody's worried about with copyright, is effectively a, 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 a little blip. Now it's an economic blip because it's the one that employs everybody, so it's important, but just historically, uh, when we look into the future, it could look a lot like the past. I think one of the things you were talking about was the impact of technology going way back. But if we look at uh, a particular, one thing I was so interested was that, that when technology impacts music, sometimes the bug becomes uh, the feature. Can you talk a little bit about the, the way that we understand technology's impact on, on the music? ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things that I, I'm very interested in, and it, again, um, kind of um, 
reveals my punk background is the idea of the things that we throw away, like the repurposing of technology. So something is invented for one idea and then it doesn't become popular uh, and then somebody else takes this thing that has now become cheap and accessible because nobody wants it and then reimagines it. And throughout musical history there's a quite a rich lineage of that um, and that's where something that it's not so much the bug becomes the feature that would be that's very true for instance of glitch music if you think about that so um, where we were or chiptune for instance arcade music from the, the 1980s where things that uh, were created because they were uh, economically necessary because you couldn't get enough recorded sound onto video games then became a stylistic base um, and then you can draw comparisons between that with uh, the turntable, for instance, uh, the use of the DJ, uh, for instance, the creation of the DJ. Uh, saxophone, I think I mentioned to you, was originally uh, a flatulence instrument in an orchestra uh, that then went out of fashion and um, ended up in junk shops throughout America and really did, according to the myth, lead to the creation of jazz because it was an affordable instrument. Uh, 808 drum machines, so if anybody here knows what an 808 sounds like, uh, they were so unpopular after they were released that they stopped, this were discontinued um, in, uh, uh, I think, 18 months after they were released in the 1980s, and yet are a fundamental component of hip-hop. And now we have an 808 day per year where you can buy your 808 shoes and your 808 jackets. And uh, the distortion pedal. Oh yeah, distortion pedal's great. Um, so. When we think about music, and we often we think about, well, music basically can be divided into four things. Yeah. Uh, rhythm, melody, harmony, and then timbre. And timbre is kind of like the sound of something, right? Like whether that's uh, an orchestra or a jazz band. And I like the idea of distortion because the idea is, is that the, I have to remember whose name it was, but basically back in the late 1950s, um, a bass player had a, a broken valve in an amp and it was rattling and uh, had to get it fixed for a show and someone said, uh, you know, I, I think that sounded quite good. It's going okay. And then that's where the kind of the bug becomes the feature and you can draw a line from that all the way through to say Jimi Hendrix um, creating a new art form through feedback. So within 10 years. And that loop is also very important when we look at technology the idea from the invention or the reimagination of something until its societal acceptance. So often if you think, all those examples I gave show you when something was created and no one was interested and then sometime later, in the case of the turntable, a hundred years uh, and in the, case of the uh, in case of AI, a couple of months and it gets reimagined. It also goes hybrid, like I have a, my, my uncle was a saxophone player in the Butlins band went on to become lead violist with the London Philharmonic. And I love when you were talking to me about the sax, how the sax gave way to from being a lowbrow flash machine in the band yep. to becoming what is considered now very highbrow. Oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're, I, I'm not sure. If it, a lot of people buy saxophones in the way that I remember that people used to have motorcycle helmets when that, that was a thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fashionable item that you can kind of just, you know... Um, 
And it, it seems like some of this, although we're talking about, we're going to talk about technology and the future and change, comes back to a basic human desire to create, to be curious, to innovate, to change. But let's take that, that moment of the, the future and, and say that right now we're hearing a lot of kind of dystopian kind of narratives around AI, lots of kind of end of the world prophecies and things. But let's take it back first of all and say, like, why, why does AI make this moment different from, say, the, the distortion pedal, the saxophone? What is different about the now? Okay, um, there's lots in this. Um, so the first one is speed. So that time lapse between when something is created, thrown away, reimagined, reinvented, um, gives us, if you imagine, it's just kind of like, like if I think back to when I was a teenager, so we're in the bedroom, musicians, Paul, everybody else come in, into this converted garage and you, you kind of kick around with things, you try things and then you, uh, so that's, that takes, you know, it could take a year, it could take two years. Um, that time is sped up, mm. so, so that's very real. The next one is scale. The fact that with the new technologies, they're everywhere. The fact that they're affordable is both uh, its promise but also its curse. Mm. Um, so we have to look at that because at the same time, and the argument on that one is kind of when it's applied to education. So if you look at chess, at one point chess was regarded as the pinnacle of, of, the, of you know, whatever about the saxophone as a, as a, as a, an accruement. If you, if you could play chess, or if you were a grandmaster, Cold Wars were fought over this. Um, and Gary Kasparov wrote a great book where he talks about how he went into a Great Depression when he was beaten by what was really just like a large refrigerator called Deep Blue. Um, but now he talks about the idea that it's clearly that this, the best chess player will never be a human, but that the overall standard of chess globally has risen. So, same applies in education. But if I think about scale, as you say, yeah. we think about scale of impact. I'm thinking back to 1973, it's the Bronx, two turntables, a microphone, and then a wave of artists that create hip hop, which is arguably the most impactful cultural movement of its time. So do you think AI makes the potential for that kind of shift to be even greater, or will it be a similar kind of impact on our musical tastes? Well, I think, if, you know, um, I'm a fan of Doctor Who, you know what I mean? So, uh, but I don't have access to a TARDIS, um, so I don't know. But if the history of music has shown us anything, then it's likely that these are our new tools and that we will continue to do with them what we've done in the past. But that's where it gets weird because of the scale that we're dealing with and also the speed of change. And what we've noticed about the reimagining of technologies in the past is that humans have reimagined them. What we now have as a very common phenomenon is this idea of emergent uh, abilities. And that's something that worries me a little bit because we do hear from you know the great technologies of our time going, Oh, we really didn't think it would do that. Or that won't happen, or, but now it will. Um, so we're probably best to consider that that's speeding up. And so I think that that again leans into this idea that this is different and that we need to look at that. Also, what roots me into all of this is the, its impact on employment. So one of the uh, peculiar things of my life is that I've worked in 
pretty much every imaginable thing that you can do to uh, survive in music. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that those, uh, that range of uh, endeavour uh, will be available, that you can earn a living. And I think that has a massive change. And I think, it, and so that roots me into that what are the social consequences, what are the ethical implications of this. Um, and there's a ch chap called Jacques Attali, who's a, you know, a very famous French philosopher and econo economist. And I kind of agree with him. He, uh, he says that music is a herald of the social change, that what occurs historically within music indicates what will happen in other parts of societies very shortly afterwards. Um, and there's a lot going on at the moment in technology. We can, we can have a yeah. look at that. Like. Let's go back to your paradigm of ecosystem and yeah. industry, because I think we can all quite clearly see how the impact on the industry is going to be phenomenal cool. in probably a very destructive way. Tell us about the revenue structures now that we have in this industry, how they might be impacted by AI. Okay, so, um, so we're talking about this blip in time, this uh, 120 years of music industry emerging from a music ecosystem. And we call music ecosystem just uh, professional and amateur uh, participation in music. Um, some, I always imagine uh, a concert hall, uh, say in Vienna, and then people outside playing folk music. So ecosystem, bit your uncle's <coughs> career covers both those areas, so that's a good idea. Um, when we hit the 20th century, we hit uh, the idea of the following thing. So there are four ways that you can make money in the music industry. There's loads of jobs, but it basically boils down to four. So you can write a song, you can record that song, you can play that song live, and if you're popular, you can sell the t-shirt that someone who went to see you play live uh, did. That's publishing, which is songwriting, recording, which is what we know now as streaming, live performance, which is when you go to the theatre, and merchandise is when you buy a piece of memorabilia of something from that artist. All of those, if you put them into a crucible, boil down to copyright. So there's a, a lot of questions about whether copyright is, whether we should have copyright, do we need to update copyright? But the one thing is that all employment in music, somehow or other, is related to one of those four areas. So you're either making it, paying for it to see it, um, participating it, supporting it, servicing it, teaching it, uh, researching it, reflecting on it, somehow or other you're going to be, you can work your way back to one of those four areas. So the thing about copyright is quite simple. What does copyright mean? It means the right to make copies. The other part about copyright that's kind of interesting, especially when it comes to AI, is it has to be made by a human. And that might sound self-evident, but there are continual challenges to intellectual property, of which copyright is only one of seven expressions, but we'll keep it to copyright. And these, ex these challenges have occurred you know, over the last hundred years, um, and it's been clearly determined normally by uh, questions of what we call non-human creativity. And this is not an AI. So for instance, one of the, lead the leading tests uh, is what we call the monkey selfies. So it's a good story, so I'll just tell you that you don't know about this? Oh. It's new to me. Okay, so uh, the monkey selfie. So uh, this guy whose name I've forgotten, anyway, doesn't mean he's not important. He goes on holidays to Indonesia, and he's a photographer, right? And uh, he's setting up his camera, and he's in Indonesia, and uh, a maracoon uh, monkey, right, 
comes along and hits the click switch and is smiling at the camera when he does it. And the guy comes back, Dave, he's, his, his full name will appear to me in time as I go through this anecdote. So he goes, these pictures are great. And he sells them to the Daily Mail, the Guardian and everybody else. And then Peter, the protection for animal rights, uh, decide to say, well, you know, you don't own the copyright for this because you didn't create it. You were on holidays. The monkey created it. <laughs> and it went all the way to the Supreme Court in America where the judge ruled, okay, when it comes to creativity, the question is the monkey certainly did uh, create this work, but we do not give copyright or authorship to a non-human. And this is a really important point because other pushes to non-legal personhood, which is this technical term, extend to environmental rights. So, for instance, the rights given to rivers, given to mountains, to land masses, to protect them from exploitation, is a general movement that we've seen worldwide. But these are the laws or the cases that we now bring to this new non-human form of creation by a machine, by AI. And there are lots of vested interests in this. And uh, this hasn't really come up too much yet, but I, if I'm making a prediction in the next six months, it's the part that we will see, which is a push towards the idea of uh, certain uh, machine rights. And once we go down that, it's a really slippery slope really fast. Machine rights, just explain that a little bit more, how that could even be a practical concept in law. Okay. So, in 1988, the Copyright Designs and Patents Act in the UK, which is the UK kind of governing thing, anticipated this somehow. I'm not quite sure how. And they said, well, what if a machine makes, you know, like who owns it if a machine creates it? Which is kind of funny because you're thinking about they had Commodore computers and something. So, uh, but anyhow, they said that the person who puts the, turns the machine on is the creator. And that's the only time that anybody's really looked at giving machine rights. There's a chap called Stephen Thaler, Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. He's, he's worth keeping an eye on. He's got a creativity machine, and he's continually making pushes in the UK and in America to give his creativity machine the rights. Generally speaking, what we're seeing is this idea that um, the question, again, like, like the monkeys, is not that they are not, AI is not capable of creativity, just that it's not human, and as a result, we're not going to give it that. But it's a thin wedge because uh, there's a couple of examples of where, mainly for publicity purposes, uh, it was seen to be funny to give uh, an AI um, or a robot, um, shall we say, give an example. So, say Sam is the American. Association of uh, Composers for Music. And they made a piece of software, AOVA, a member, completely illegal, completely nonsensical, PR based. But everybody went, well, that's kind of interesting. So an AI can write a piece of songs. Now we have an AI as a composer. Uh, Sophia the robot I wrote about, uh, or the android, which is kind of like a glove puppet, um, but she became like the um, ambassador for the UN. She was appointed as a citizen of Saudi Arabia. Um, and again, these were publicity ideas. But the question is, is that if you give AI rights, then the idea of making copyright for a song, you might think, doesn't really matter. But then if you come up with a patent for cancer, 
you know, to a black box AI-created machine. That's just another form of intellectual property. Um, so, you know, you don't tr go into those areas lightly. But once you create a rule in one part of intellectual property, it can very easily be argued that it can exist in another one. And then suddenly you go, how did we get here? Whose idea was this? And really, it's nobody's idea. It just happens. And because of the speed of change, that's dangerous. That kind of sums up the entire AI revolution right? in that last sentence. How did we get here? Yeah. What brought us here? And I wonder, um, when you were saying that not many people had looked at the legal kind of side of it, that one person had gone, oh, let's have a look, what if we gave the machine the credit? It seems like something that science fiction is way ahead on, you know, that we, that, that kind of writers and filmmakers are already kind of grappling with those issues. If we give the machine the right, well, what happens next? And what is, for you, I guess, if we play this dystopian world back to these dystopian narratives, what's the worst place in your deepest, darkest nightmares? And I always regret asking this question, and it's something we keep doing on the podcast, and always halfway through I regret it, because um, I've got some new nightmares now after this. So darkness and Oh hope. yeah, we want to go... And hope. Well, we'll, no, we'll end... I got the we'll, glass half full, by the way, just for a second. See, I, that's why I've been drinking mine as we go, to make sure it's half, you know, empty. The darkest part is basically that you end up in a situation with... Uh, a kind of feudal situation. Um, the world is, we, we know what it's very, we're very good, uh, well practiced as humans at um, dividing ourselves into others and separating um, discrimination. So when we bring in the idea of a certain class of superhumans, and there's a massive movement towards that which falls underneath transhumanism. Um, that's pretty dystopian. Um, it's kind of inevitable to a degree, um, but if we recognize the calm that's involved in that, then there's time to change that. Um, but you have to recognize the, the, what, what's involved in that. Um, how that works is that you end up in a situation where, kind of like a caste system, where, like, I'll give an example. We have... Uh, a very progressive policy in Ireland for um, 3,000 people. I can't remember the official name of it. Um, maybe someone can remind me. That it's the uh, it's the three-year thing where you for artists where you get paid basic income protection scheme. Thank you. Which is which sounds like a great which is a great idea. So you pay I think 350 quid a week for three years um, to help the arts. Now that was prior to AI. The next thing that happened for me is that COVID happened, and the great part, this is where the hope comes in, is that what we saw globally across the political spectrum is that every country wanted to protect the arts, certainly music specifically, but also theatre. And regardless of where, for instance, in America, there was no question, nobody argued across the, across the, in fact, the only thing I haven't argued about, about protecting the arts. Ireland was really progressive in that area too. And what did that say? It said to us that we do care about art. It's not something we actually have to come, like introduce that as a concept. Now AI, if you like, is the, to a degree, staying in the darkness, uh, could be seen as some kind of super COVID um, and could demolish, yeah, I can see how logically it could, could demolish all income. Staying with the darkness for a moment, if I can make the comparison to the information ecosystem, yeah. which over the past 10 years, where the volume of just crap 
and lies and conspiracy theories is overwhelmed then the, the rarity, the scarcity of the quality information to the point that nobody believes anything they see. Could a similar thing happen in music where essentially there is so much music around us that the, the value is reduced to almost zero and destroys the music industry? Yeah, I mean, no. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was announced today, US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, announced a global uh, peace policy based on music. Um, and it was a big deal. I thought it was just like a press statement. And I read the whole thing. Like, they've been working on this for a long time. And now it's to promote American values through music. Quincy Jones is kind of chief of staff. They appointed him with some kind of medal. But they're like, they're not messing. Like, this is like, when I saw the plans, I was going, this is, this is, this is weaponizing music. Again, for, for democracy and for, for American values. Um, so... Um, yeah, I, I think no one's dismissing the power of music, which is great. The question now is, what do we care about? How do we protect it? How do we grow this? So that it's an ecosystem where if you want to be a musician or an artist, then you don't have to have three jobs. You don't have to choose not to have a child. You, know, you might be able to get a mortgage. There shouldn't be questions that if you want to uh, be an artist that you're excluded from. I, this doesn't make any sense to me, especially when we should point out that the value of copyright is at an all-time high. So it's music, there's never been more money spent on music. It's never been worth more than it is at the moment. It's just the old thing that it's just not necessarily being distributed in the ways that it could be. Um, and I don't, I, because of your relationship with Spotify, mm. adhere to the idea that the DSPs, for instance, the Spotify's or the Apple Music's, are evil. They're not. The question about it is, is that we devalued music to the price of chewing gum. And now we have to just figure out ways to take what, what the love that everybody has and the government's and support and industry support and figure out new ways of creating revenue. There are three ways that people respond. Sorry if it sounds like a party political broadcast on the behalf of nobody. But I'll just say this, there's three ways that we normally deal with uh, these kind of technical changes. One is that you litigate, okay? So you kind of, I'll sue you. you. You copied my record. You're a bad person. Don't do that. Home taping is killing music. And we support that then with a the second L, which is legislation. Um, give us a law that we can sue him against. But there's a third one, and the third one is licensing, which is let's come up with something more imaginative that we can create a new way that people will want to participate from the music ecosystem to support those that want to dedicate their lives for one reason or another to the creation of music, and therefore all the other creative arts follow. I mean, it seems like there's a, a huge amount at stake there. You've got the kind of people's livelihoods and a, a fundamental ecosystem. You have that kind of... The value of music to us as a society, as a culture, whether it's emotion or connection, that we've seen, as you said, through COVID, that it was so important. And then you've got that piece that you mentioned earlier, that canary in the mind shaft, that whatever's happening right now with music, uh, we're navigating challenges that are going to go far beyond music, that this is a, a space to do it. And maybe that's where we bring in some of the positivity that I know... For me, it sounds counterintuitive. I mean, I remember people saying that globalization would wipe out local culture. It's on the opposite, right? 
because now, and this is a statistic I found amazing, is in every European country where there used to be dominated charts by British mm-hmm. and American music, the top 10 in all European countries now is local language. So something's kind of counterintuitive has happened. And I always think back to like Merseyside 1961 and the Cunard sailors are coming off the boats with the music they picked up in the south of America and they're putting it in the stores and Brian Epstein comes along and he buys it and so does the Fab Four who then go on to create a revolution of pop music. Is there a positive argument here that perhaps what we're seeing is the beginnings of the speeding up of those kind of crossover moments for culture? That perhaps there is a way here to empower more people. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think hope is really important to talk about because dystopian thing is kind of like a parlor game. And I kind of tend to do it if someone says, you think that's dark? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but that's not, that doesn't drive my logic or how, how, what motivates me. Um, certainly when I started my research, Dystopian views, dark views, are really easy to do, especially when you reach a certain age. There's a certain kind of comfort to the idea that everybody else's future, who's younger than you, is awful. Um, that in- is not intellectually challenging or in any way curious. So when I was doing my research, I tried to figure out, well, how do you make things better? What can we do? Like, what would hope look like? Um, and that was the tricky bit. So uh, in that regard, there are, um, there are parts, parts of this. So yeah, absolutely right. So YouTube, while it may not have been paying anybody at the time, became the world's jukebox. And we saw the first change from the kind of um, the hegemony of the uh, of English language, uh, which means just basically the top 10 for the last 30 years had always been in English. And bit by bit, that has watered down because of access to music. And again, one of the paradoxes of globalization is the appreciation of, your, of what's local, of what's special about the street that you live on, the county that you live in, the, the, you know, your community. Um, and, we're, and we're good at that in Ireland, and I think we're in a special place to do that because of our size. So, for, for instance, you know, back in 2016, when we saw the kind of uh, first kind of wave of um, what well, now looks quite quaint of uh, political manipulation through Brexit and what was happening in America, um, I don't think that could have happened in Ireland because we talked like it's too small. You know somebody, you're going to go, look, that's a lot of old cobblers, do you know what I mean? And, and I think we're insulated to a degree that I, that's my hope a bit. And we talk about AI as being the generative AI thing that just suddenly has become a fact in life here with ChatGPT, but AI has been around for a long time doing a lot of work in the background to curate and personalize. I mean, so the recommender systems that are at work um, have been also the subject of a lot of negative focus because of what they've done to the information ecosystem, but they've kind of helped, haven't they, curate tastes and given people the ability to be a little bit more in control of finding the the good stuff and all of the crap? Or would you think that recommender systems have been a problem and net negative? Okay, so there was this idea, Chris Anderson, back in the, uh, he was one of the founder editors of Wired, came up with this idea of the long tail, which was the promise of the internet. You're familiar with this idea? So the idea here was that um, the long tail would provide his example at the time was Bollywood movies. So a Bollywood movie in America uh, could open in two cinemas only. 
However, Netflix, which at that time was a, a dial and post service, um, could sell half a million copies of DVDs of Bollywood films across America because it was personalized. And he came up with this idea of the long tail. Um, if we had great, if kind of like, if all the books in Alexandria were available to be read, they would all be read, wouldn't they? Well, it turned out, no. It turns out that what actually happens is, is that we listen to more and more of the same things. We watch the same TV programs. Um, and that's kind of down to us. So, you know, that's not them. That's us. Um, but then again, you also see like music has now become very timeless. Like back in the 80s, that song was in the charts for a week and it was gone. Whereas now today, I see my kids exploring to the point where my son recently said to me, I've got this great song. Have you ever heard of Steely Dan? And I'm realizing now that actually... Uh, you saw that uh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's now coming back to me with the Pixies, so we definitely moved him in the right direction. But, but, that, but that idea that there is actually now kind of a... Um, a wealth if you could just find the kind of way to bring the scarcity back in the overabundance I think that seems to me to be part of what you're talking is about is like restoring some sense of scarcity and value among the yeah I mean I mean the idea of, of creating digital scarcity is definitely um, the only problem with that is that that was kind of the dream of the web 3.0 and uh, NFTs uh, which is very much last year and it has a boom or bust effect so NFTs were non-fungible tokens and for six months they were the huge thing and now they've lost 96% of their value but that's only because they got mixed up in the, cri the crypto crap the actual idea is fundamental so the, the idea is good uh, if it was just yes they'd be rebranded as not NFTs but the idea of creating um, I think we spoke the other day about you know, uh, a painter doing a limited edition set of prints that are signed. To me, that's an NFT. That's the logic of it. And things like that can generate income. Um, but generative uh, AI, where it's going to become interesting, is when we see the shift uh, from to what we call, or Alvin Toffler of the 70s called a prosumer. So the first wave of AI is what you've used, seen with recommender systems, and the next wave is what we're seeing with ChatGPT and all of the... Uh, creative systems, augmented AI uh, work that's going on. And perhaps we should just unpack, I don't know how we yeah. have the time, but it's worth talking about. Some questions at the moment. So I'll give you an example. If we think, for instance, of um, what you, that fork to farm idea, mm. all right, as a technical thing. So uh, if we start, say, over here, that's Arthur, right? So if Arthur thinks of a song, let's just think of the process of a song, right? How is a song created? So Arthur thinks of something and he's going, yeah, you know. Okay, so he comes up with an idea for a riff. And then what he does is he goes, he passes that song on to a team of musicians, a variety, and we to say that that's drums, bass, guitar, and all those jobs that are there and stuff like that. And then that gets passed to the next part of the chain and that person does the mixing, puts all that together and does the da-da-da-da. And then before release, it goes for a polish to the mastering engineer. 
and then it goes to the marketing department. Sorry, Heath. Um, but it's who you know who do the branding and this, the design and everything else and da, 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 da. Now we've got in each of these particular sections generative AI, huge amounts of money being targeted very very well to assist each of you at those points. But we also now have text to music generators. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not speaking. You have this that, which definitely casts you as the Bond villain here, right? Uh, where you've just wiped out everybody's job and there's no assistance because we're just going to create content with you. The plus side of that, to me, that's the ukulele story. Do you know what I mean? Like AI is like a ukulele if we see it positively. It's a cheap form of being able to participate in music and learn and bring you on somewhere else. And how we decide how we interact with these tools and how we harness them and how we position them economically really will determine the future of everything in a very, very, very short space of time. And that's just to go back into the darkness a little bit. Um, we're probably talking about six to 18 months, really. That's about the window that's here for this. I mean, I think you have to keep that darkness with the hope, otherwise we'd be going blindly into the uh, dystopia if you didn't keep that darkness there. But or we'd be working for one of the big tech companies. Yeah. But, but as Mark said, we will be about to come to some, some questions, but it seems, and, and from this podcast, a lot of what we've been doing and people we've been talking to have said similar things. You know, it's this, this sheer speed of change, the scale of change. I think whiplash kept coming up, this sudden, how do you deal with everything that's coming at you? But also, what's coming up is this contradiction that you have to hold these two completely opposite ideas in your head between this restoring scarcity and anyone can do it, that we're in this... Oh. But I guess, coming back to the quote we had from the original Paxman interview with David Bowie, is that this idea of we're on the cusp of something incredible, like this tip of the iceberg, it, yeah. it could be brilliant. Oh, it's it great fun. We have got, listen, the, 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 here's the great part with all this. Like none of this stuff, that ukulele was popular because it was fun. Chat GPT... Yes, it increases your productivity 10x, but it's also great fun. The reason we're using these tools is because they're really, really good fun. If they were boring, we wouldn't be using them. So this is the positive part. All we have to do is to harness that to go, and imagine we created a bit of employment along with that fun. It's like, it's like hardly rocket science, do you know what I mean? Um, and that's kind of, that, 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 that's the bit. We ca you capture the passion. You demystify it, you cut the bullshit out, and you say, follow the money, who's getting paid, why, why, why are you being given this advice, and who's being rewarded for you getting that advice. And like most times when you lift the veil, it's quite clear to see, oh, you're not in the music ecosystem. <laughs> and so you just need to direct that. And that's where the idea of ethics comes in. And ethics means simply, do you care? What do you care about and what are you going to do about that? And that can inform the law. And, and just before we do hand questions, I have one more, sorry. It's just that piece that, what do I do then? I'm not a legislator. What agency do I have as an individual to make that change? Do I have any or am I just going to sit and roll along for the ride while making stuff on chat? Just taking off the ukulele. Yeah. yeah, but still time, it's still time. The ukulele takes time. <laughs> Um, though there's a great piece of AI that does grow bluegrass immediately, so you know. Uh, the, but, but 
you, you tell me a question again, Ali. So, so, so beyond the kind of what you can do if you're in that ecosystem, is there anything that you can do as an individual to kind of push this change at all? That I think that's one of the big things. Of, so we don't feel helpless, and you're just strapping in for a crazy six, eight, ten months, however many, how long, long we have before doomsday. Well. I did work out a solution to this because that's kind of my, my notion. So can I talk a little bit about this? Please. Uh, so what I've been doing as part of the research is currently working with Enterprise Island uh, for a thing called AIOK. And it's effectively, um, I'll know in the next two or three weeks whether or not um, they support it. Even if they don't support it, probably do it anyway uh, because it's a really good idea. And what it effectively means is this, is that um, and it's based on, a, on a, a hunch that I have. So if we take, and again, I'm sorry about this, two identical products, say Apple Music and Spotify, so 10 bucks for all the music you can listen to per month. And they're good, and they're, and, and they're recommended systems, and I love Spotify. Like, I mean, actually, I have it, um, um, and I adore having access to music uh, at a reasonable price. So my gamble, the idea was that if one of those had a sticker that said AIOK, apart from the fact that you're not being nudged in particular, a whole bunch of other things, but effectively if you knew that I spend that 10 bucks on something that somehow or other will work its way back into the music ecosystem, encourage employment, enough people would choose to do and purchase that. Um, that has to be made with some serious technology, which is why I'm looking for the funding. Uh, I have the backing of, at least in principle, expressions of interest from a lot of the big tech companies, senior levels of the music industry. Um, so I think we can maybe make it a reality. Certainly the technology we can build. And, it's, and, it, and even if someone was to steal that idea, hopefully Spotify wouldn't do that, but <laughs> if someone was to steal that idea and do it correctly, it, it, it works on the same principle. That's the kind of thing that would be there, where you would have a very deep understanding that you could kind of, if you wanted to know why something qualified, so it can't be greenwashing or any other kind of like, uh, peace is good, war is bad type of depth, right? It has to be something that really you get into the weeds with the AI ethics. But when we make consumer choices, we need something simple that we can trust. And then we can go, okay, I'm gonna get my phone, my service provider, my Wi-Fi. So who's gonna tell us that the AI, the technology that we're using is okay? We can't wait for legislation because it's just too long and, and I could take up 15 minutes just telling, having fun and games about the history of why copyright law just doesn't stand a chance against the technology. But this simple idea of getting stakeholders, basically everybody who's in a particular sector-specific area, figure out what it is you care about, and then label it so that consumers and stakeholders can make an informed decision, that to me is that's the best I could do with PhD. What I love about that is that it, it has to supersede the tech industry and the government yeah. and it empowers the user. So it's like fair trade almost. You know exactly what's in the in the piece of music where it's coming. But but thank you so much, Martin. This has been incredible. It's given us both, um, I think, a lot to think about in terms of that fear, but also that hope and that optimism that we like to stay on. 
Mark is doing a, a plug here for the book. I can say that I sat and read it this week. It is incredible. Congratulations. Um, so thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you to Mark for being an incredible uh, co-conspirator on this whole project. Uh, thank you again to all the team here in the Hub. They are incredible. Um, and to all the volunteers that are making sure this festival goes on. One last plug while we're on plugs for the podcast. Don't forget, if you've not listened to Series 1, you can get it wherever you get your, uh, your podcasts um, and listen to all of it. Uh, and then finally, just to thank you all for coming. It's yes. been a great yes, conversation. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you.